0: metal nerd podcast and this is your host joe arnold and i have with me jen taylor warren today from subsurface tension what's up jen
1: hey joe how are you
0: i'm doing great awesome Um, i'm really excited to talk about iron maiden
1: (laughs) me too my favorite band my favorite album but joe i've known you for what over 20 years
0: yeah i think so
1: a long time, used to play drums in an original band. Yeah, in... And... Fruited. Uh-huh. That I did um, some PR and photography work for. So, um, yeah. And and maybe people don't remember that about you or know that about you, that you are an amazing, amazing drummer, um, uh, in addition oh, thank to you. <laughs> being a singer. <laughs> But um and, and that's what's exciting about talking about the number of the Beast album and getting into some of Clive Burr's uh drum intros and drum parts, which are phenomenal and for me help knock this album out of the park, even though it's Bruce Dickinson's first album with Iron Maiden, it was Clive Burr's last album with them, and so to me that yeah. it even more special
0: yeah, absolutely i love I love Clive he was. He's amazing. Uh, Jen's got a killer heavy metal band from Orange County, Subsurface Tension. Um, do you wanna talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure, we've been together about three years. We are heavy metal, that's exactly, people say we sound like a cross between Merciful Fate, Maiden, Black Sabbath, um, with a with female vocals, but I'm very influenced by Bruce Dickinson. Uh, so I, I get that a lot. We have have similar Bruce Dickinson, but I, I I was the first vocalist for the Iron Maidens and that was 18 and a half years ago.
0: Yeah. When we
1: started that. And so I'm very influenced by Bruce Dickinson and that's actually been a challenge for me. Singing now where I've had to kind of branch out and find my own voice away from Bruce because I worked so hard to mimic his vocal style, his His grit mixed with his kind of opera classical vibrato, air raid siren. Anyway, subsurface tension. We've been together three years. We're we have a lot of chemistry, and we just dropped a new um, single called "Devil Pinup Girl," and it is on the Metal Assault mixtape, Volume Three that we're really excited about. And we were selected as a semi-finalist for the Vakin Medal battle, Inland Empire number two. And we were oh, yeah. getting ready to do the kind of the, the semifinals and get closer to the finals. And they locked us down and they, um, they canceled Vakin, <clears throat> So we were disappointed, but also we, we got to meet a lot of great people and, Some new bands and for me that that's just as fun as performing on stage is meeting all the other bands and and i'm constantly blown away by so much talent out there and i just yeah lucky to be included in that heavy metal club where i get to just go up and be on stage and go crazy and and uh, play metal
0: (laughs) right totally that's awesome well um as you mentioned we're going to talk about number of the beast Uh, The Number of the Beast is the third studio album by English heavy metal band Iron Maiden. It was released on March 22, 1982 in the UK by EMI Records and in the United States by Harvest and Capitol Records. It became the band's first album to top the UK album charts and reach the top 40 of the U.S. Billboard 200. It was recorded between January and February 1982 at Battery in london by martin birch and i read they it took them only uh five weeks to record and mix
1: that's, that's crazy and martin birch just <laughs> passed away um did he really a week ago yeah
0: oh no way
1: he actually when he found maiden he pushed off all those other artists he worked with rainbow um a bunch, R- Richie Blackmore, he had to deal with him <laughs> and kind mm. of pushed everybody off and said, now that I've found Maiden, I'm going to make them my sole focus. You can hear that in the recordings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And he, when what was the last record he did with them? Do you know?
1: I think it might have been that pretty blue one with the clouds. Um, I don't think he did the Wicker Man one. So the one before that was...
0: No, he didn't he do that. Seventh
1: son, but don't quote me on that. Um, I just think it was it was through that where they had started using Michael Kenny on keyboards for a few posts, mm-hmm. He did, and then um and then after that stopped. I think he may have done one with Blaze Bailey, but there oh, are okay. people out there who say, like, Oh no, you're wrong. And they've got the stats, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could look, but that's
1: right. It breaks consistent. up the continuity. Like when you're at over dinner and you're trying to have a conversation, and someone says, "Well, wait, hold that thought. Let me look it up on my phone." And I want to say, "I'm not say this to people. Just put your phone away. Let's talk face to face like human beings." Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's I, I kind of it's fun to guess once in a while. Like right? we're not going to be guess, guessing anymore in like a couple years when you can just ask, um, what's it called, Alexa for right. everything.
1: And sometimes it's fun <laughs> to get it wrong because then people in the comments yes. will chime in and then we have some nice interaction going on.
0: Right, right. Interaction, mm-hmm. that thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to keep around. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. There was just a one other thing that was kind of interesting. I think it was, oh yeah. The New York Times reported in 2010 that 14 million copies have been sold worldwide. I didn't know that either. That's nuts to me.
1: Hmm. People will consider this one of the greatest metal albums of all time, or they'll go up against, you know, is it master of puppets? Is it, is it peace cells you know, or so far so good. So what, what's the best. And this one, um, for me, it was always this one and master puppets, but I have to bow down to this one.
0: Yeah. That's awesome.
1: An interesting thing about this album, is the lawsuit for Would Be Thy Name that was settled in, I believe, 2017.
0: Uh, Ooh, I kind of remember hearing about that.
1: For breach of copyright. And it really, it, it stinks for, for poor Dave Murray and um, Steve Harris, because basically this band called Life's Shadow, they, uh, they wrote this song in the 70s, recorded by a band Beckett, B-E-C-K-E-T written by these two guys, Robert Barton and Brian Ingham, who also went by Brian Quinn. And I've heard the song. There are six lines from this that are duplicated in how would be thy name, which is a bummer because, because of those six lines it ended up costing Steve and Dave out of their own pockets over a hundred thousand dollars, well, a hundred thousand pounds, which, you know, it, it probably comes out to, Hundred grand USD, but um, what stinks is <laughs> Steve had an agreement with one of those two, um, so he had an agreement with <clears throat> I believe Robert Barton saying, "Hey, you can use it. We're good. The song doesn't sound anything like How Would Be Thy Name. It's just six lines of lyrics that are pretty darn close. I mean, they're they're pretty close, and so." He had an agreement. So he was like, we're good. Well, years later, after Hallowed Be Thy Name became this huge hit, Brian Ingham, yeah. a.k.a. Brian Quinn, came out of the woodwork and wanted a payout and basically said, hey, I'm a co-writer of this song. Even though he didn't write the lyrics and Steve didn't think he wrote the lyrics, he probably wrote the melody line and the guitar line. Didn't matter. Um by at least with us copyright law, let's say Joe, you and I write a song together. Let's say I write the lyrics. You write the melody line for that vocal and or the guitar backing. We, we fill out that split sheet 50, 50. Then, um, guess what? Years later, you own half of the lyrics and I own half of the melody line, even though you wrote the melody line and I wrote the lyrics. So, um, Hmm. and, and, and I get it. I mean, they wrote this a long time ago, and you kind of learn the hard way going through copyright law. And what ended up happening was, um, I think Steve, and Steve Harris was trying to produce royalty figures for the courts, and the other side was saying, oh, these aren't accurate. So it ended up costing over six figures just in legal fees, And so finally Mm -hmm. just all agreed to settle out of court, but Dave and Steve ended up picking up both legal fees for the plaintiffs and themselves. And, um, that just makes me sad, but I did go back and listen to it today and Oh, damn, the words are right out of this other song. And it's like, Oh, you could have just changed a few words here and there. Um, you know, and one thing Steve Harris did say in his defense was that, he grabbed a section of the lyrics and threw it in the scratch tracks to kind of give a feel for what he wanted. And then later on, yeah. forgot to change it out. So who, who knows if that's true or not? It's just, it's like, that's a really expensive um, thing to forget,
0: but. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, the, the funny thing about that is it, um, it kind of lines up with what I read, which was they were kind of in a hurry. so like i guess um it sounds like they had written you know partially on the road and then partially at home as most you know touring acts do Mm -hmm. and then but like they they were actually the reason they took uh, it took them you know they were only allowed five weeks to record and mix was because they took so long to like their pre-production side you know the writing Mm -hmm. so (laughs) it sounds like that might have been like on the back burner of things to do and they just didn't get get to it, perhaps. I don't know. But that's, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. You're right, what, what an expensive mistake, huh?
1: Yeah, but producing such a such a work of art in five weeks, it, it makes sense that they would forget this or that, especially if there's a few beers involved.
0: Yeah. And they probably I mean, I would imagine they probably just never thought it would become a problem.
1: Right? Especially if you the know. guy if thought there was one writer, I mean, you've yeah. you've probably been in bands where they say, Hey, let's resurrect these other songs. Maybe you've got two or three members from another band. They say, Hey, let's just play this. The the writers won't care. And it's like, wait a minute.
0: Right.
1: The writers want yeah. more their family. <laughs> so if if it, if it becomes big, yeah, they'll care. If it doesn't become big, yeah, nobody'll care.
0: Well, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so how did you discover Iron Maiden?
1: Good question. Um, I knew nothing about Maiden, except I would see the guys, the metal guys at school. I went to school in Westminster wearing their Maiden shirts uh, with Derek Riggs artwork, which now we know Derek Riggs. Sometimes he comes over for Thanksgiving dinner at our house. So it's like really humbling. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah nuts he at our studio he even drew an eddie over the the archway of the the studio door that's like oh Oh my god hello door but i knew nothing about maiden and i'm the oldest of six kids and i never had a big brother i never had i've got three brothers they're all younger than me i never had older siblings to like say hey let, let me sneak you out and we're gonna go see black sabbath or let's uh let's Here, you want to listen to this music. So I had to kind of stumble upon it. And some guys at school wore the Maiden shirt. And I'm like, damn, that's a badass shirt. I bet you that band sounds really dark and evil and spooky. And and I knew nothing about it. And I was an avid listener of Uncle Joe Benson's show on KLOS called The Seventh Day, where he would play – seven albums every Sunday and they were all great albums and usually they were current but sometimes they were just old classic albums and he said I'm going to be playing the number of the beast by Iron Maiden and I thought oh I can't miss that so I had my little ghetto blaster aka boom box
0: yeah totally dual
1: cassette. and you know I was on a budget I had to buy my records and bought my first guitar with my babysitting money, you know, changing a bunch of poopy diapers. That's how I would buy my records. So Yeah. Uh, Hustling. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hustle and poop. So I thought yeah. I can tape this and granted it'll be a bootleg copy off my little tape player with the radio attached, but I thought I wanted whatever. We'll give it a shot. I'm sure it's dark and spooky music. So I recorded it. And I was just, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was lying on the floor Mm. of my olive green shag carpet in my bedroom with my elbows leaned out, just staring at my radio like the ladies did in the old days, like it was a TV. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I listened to it start to stop because it's shorter. It's only a 40 minute album.
0: Right, right.
1: I could not believe number one how melodic they were with the and with the harmonies, the dual harmonies of the lead solos couldn't believe that. and then Bruce's right. vocals being very strong yet extremely melodic and classical with the same type of vibrato and tone that my voice teachers and choir teachers were teaching me at the time hmm. grow up in a musical family um, classical music. And I, I just couldn't believe my ears. This is the same band as those cool, scary, kick-ass T-shirts. This is phenomenal. And so once I had that album taped, I would listen to it over and over and over and over again. Um, so that's what introduced me to Iron Maiden.
0: Wow. And what, what were you, like, listening to at the time?
1: Mm. Before that. So before that, I was... I, let's see, as a, like a 10 year old, I started listening to whatever was on the radio, but it kind of bored me. So it was like Blondie or the pop punk stuff. And then the disco station that my little girlfriends listened to, I found very boring because they had the same eight, 10 songs on the rotation. And so when MTV hit, I was addicted to MTV, but I never really wanted to spend my babysitting money on a lot of the, the new wave or new romantic music. I liked it. It was very melodic. It was very singable, but I didn't want to like, I wouldn't fork over my money for that in the record store. But mm. when I started hearing rock, like Ted Nugent or foreigner, Joan Jett, Hart, Billy Squire, ACDC, I started getting some of that, the police. And then I, I, got into more hair metal stuff like Def Leppard, Motley Crue. I thought that was really cool. And, you you know, I'm a teenager and then you get the the hair metal. It's like, Ooh, they're so cute. The cute boy kind of a thing. And then once (laughs) I heard (laughs) Judas Priest and Maiden, then that was done. Then it's like, okay, (laughs) I've had my fill of hair metal. Not that there's anything wrong with it. There's some great melody, great melodic songwriting that has come out of hair metal but it just, it just wasn't my thing anymore. Once I heard Maiden and Priest, I got into that, and then eventually, once I heard Metallica, Megadeth, Merciful Fate, then that was my main focus and really getting into thrash. But it was that balance between
0: that's awesome
1: power metal, aka progressive metal, which Maiden kind of fits into with thrash metal. Right. That's why my my band that I am playing with right now is a perfect fit because we are a balance between power metal and thrash metal for kind of a fresh heavy metal pure genre, rather than trying to fit into a mold of some of the newer, newer metal stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Cause there's a lot of great other genres out there. This just is the most true for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool um can you tell me about a time you saw them live that sticks out
1: i've seen them recently and i saw them with ghost and i knew nothing about ghost and ghost blew me away i was an immediate fan once i saw
0: i think i was at that show
1: yeah i i went a local show and then i we drove to vegas to see it as well because
0: was that like um about three years ago yes Okay. They
1: played yeah. on my birthday, and I drove out to Vegas, and the maidens were playing at Count Vamped, and so they let me come on stage as the the Power Slave Eddie girl that I do sometimes with my big gold costume, and so that was a super uh, fun yeah. birthday for me. Um, but oh,
0: that's the, so rad.
1: The maiden incident that really sticks out in my head: um, I kind of got manhandled by security because I didn't know any better. Oh. I kind of did a no-no. I, I rushed the stage and, and I didn't oh know to do that. I was 16 years old. Here's this 112 pound glasses wearing skinny dorky girl. And I had tickets in the eighth row. So I was so excited and I was running a little bit late. So it was Long Beach Arena and I walk in. I'm, I'm park get in the get in the arena get my tickets cleared through the back and just as i walk in the back of that rectangular arena the lights go down i don't even remember who opened for them the lights go down and oh. the intro was starting and it was probably number of the beast uh, Vincent Vince Price intro and i and i just got chilled so so it's
0: this tour it's number of the beast tour
1: no no i wasn't allowed to go to i was <laughs> my parents would shelter me and not let me out I'd have to sneak out to go to uh, to concerts but this particular oh, wow, one 16, I had my own car I had a job when I was 16 so I got the tickets and I I drove myself and I went but um no this was the somewhere somewhere in time album so this was caught, okay. this was caught somewhere on tour uh, tour right okay in 1986 so that's I awesome. I, I go in the back and the lights are just coming down. And I think it was Vincent Price, number of the beast intro was starting. And I just nice. said, ooh, I have eighth row tickets. I need to be in the eighth row. And in my mind, I have every right to rush the stage and run to the eighth row because I have my eighth row ticket in my hand. But I didn't understand right. you don't do that. You're a 16 year old girl, you're in the dark. They, they don't care if you're a little girl, you're running toward that stage. And so this big security guard, um, held out his hand, boom, and stopped me right in the chest, like bam, and it was, it was physically oh, jarring. It was like ah, what? and I and I held up my ticket. I said eighth row, and you know, I he's flashing the flashlight on the ticket in my eyes, and it was so surreal. And he saw I was telling the truth, so he kind of said, "Okay, you can go." And then I I then I just quickly walked. I didn't sprint. Up. I learned my ah. and and got up there. The security gentleman up there helped me get sit where I was supposed to be, stand where I was supposed to be, right in the middle. And I was so close to them. I couldn't believe it. These are my idols. I'd watched these guys for yeah. years. I wanted to be an Iron Maiden. And I just yeah. burst into tears. And pro- probably also because I just was manhandled by this big security guy and it, it just discombobulated <laughs> all my emotions. and my the emotions, yeah. Seeing. These guys, just so close, playing my favorite music in the world. It was unbelievable. Yeah. It was one of the most amazing concert moments of my entire life. But, yeah, if I had a bigger brother, he would have said, hey, you don't rush the stage. You walk in the back and just kind of walk quickly to your seat. You don't run in the dark, young lady.
0: <laughs> right. That's hilarious. Oh, my God. That's great. Man, I that, like, the whole thing with the Long Beach Arena that – totally like I just get so sentimental because of like live after death. And I mean, that was like, you know, I didn't, I got into Maiden like probably like 92. Mm -hmm. So I was a little late to the game. Um, But like the first thing I really got into was live after death, believe it or not. And so that whole like, um, you know, Long Beach arena and uh, power slave tour and all that stuff like it, it just, there's so much like sentimental value there for me with that and i actually got to see them i got to see them at long beach arena like much later like i think probably around 2000 or 2001 or something like that when after dickinson had come back to the band Mm,
1: yeah and and the thing is you're you're young so it's not that you found them late into the game you found them right when you were supposed to find them you weren't yeah and listening to them as a two-year-old you know right, right We right. all find we all find our own path to to every artist so i gosh you're way younger than me so no you found them right on time
0: <laughs> yeah it was cool it was like they, they were just like uh because like i really like i didn't i wasn't totally in like right away And then once it, like, I like my brother was actually playing the tape, you know, a lot. And so, and then eventually it just like hooked me. Like, he'd be like in the other room and I would, it just be kind of like in the background to me. But eventually it just like, I'd be like, oh, that sounds really cool and interesting. And then it just like, after a while, I was just hooked. And then like that road, once I was in, it was like such a fun, like to me, they're one of the bands that there's just, once you're on that ride, it's just such a fun ride. You know, they're, they're, you know, there's every album, there's so much to dig into, like the culture around the band, just the whole thing. It's just so fun.
1: They're iconic. Everything they do is so unique to them. And I think that's something that Martin Birch helped them achieve being their producer and engineer, especially on this album.
0: Yeah. So the thing I remember about Martin Birch was, um, I guess like so um he did killers too, but he didn't do the first album, and I, I guess like they they uh, uh when they approached him about the second album, this was on like one of those videos, you know, one of their documentary videos they
1: mm-hmm. they
0: have like I can't remember which one but but like he was like, well, why didn't you guys hit me up because you know I would have loved to have done it, but they just didn't like reach out because they were intimidated because he was like Martin Birch, who did like black side right, really like heard,
1: heard of it that kills me when, when yeah. people yeah. say, that. it's like, you know what, especially being a struggling artist and those guys like working as street sweepers and trash guys, they, they were blue collar guys. And yeah, you, I don't think a lot of people understand um, even people in our position where we, we have day jobs and then we have bands on the side, our albums are self-funded and yeah. back yeah. then even if you are, even back then, getting like a capital Records record deal, you it, it's not a it's not a free ride. You are expected to pay right. back and, and more with interest all the money that that record company invests into you. And sometimes, depending on your record company, they're not giving you the best deal. They're actually um, book uh, not fudging the books that that makes all that makes it sound illegal. And some of them are, are run very, very ethically, but I think a lot of people think, Oh, just do this and you'll get a record deal. And then your, your life is, is just free and clear after that. And, and when, no, you get a record deal and now you're kind of a slave to those terms that you signed off. Sometimes you don't even own your masters. Sometimes you don't own your own logo, your own um, different, pieces parts of intellectual property and then you've got to tour and work and sell a certain number of of pieces of album or merchandise products in order to even to get to that break even point but i think a lot of people think oh once you have the record deal you're making lots of money and um anyway right right and yeah if if you are an Aussie or a black sabbath or a maiden or any of these pop artists yeah you're gonna break out of that and and you can turn that into wealth but i think also what record companies would do is also prop up certain artists to make them look larger than they actually were because it helps sell the brand
0: yeah yeah it's so crazy i always think about like with maiden i mean i was just thinking about how you when you when you're talking about propping up and how they were like the opposite of that really because um like the whole thing where they sold out like four nights on the power slave tour at, at Long Beach arena yeah, and fil- filming, you know, uh, live after death and all that. And like, they really had very, very little if, if, if at all, like any push from like radio and MTV and stuff like that. And, uh, Hey guys, this is Joe cutting in real quick. I just wanted to, um, ask you guys if you could share the show, if you're digging it, uh, right now, that's the best way to help out the show. Um, so, you know, send a text to a friend or or uh, uh, share it through social media, however you, uh, you usually do that. We'd really appreciate it. And uh, we're also on Instagram at The Metal Nerd Podcast. Uh, and so you can go on there and comment and uh, give us some feedback. So we'd love to hear from you. And thank you guys again. And now back to the show. I, to my knowledge, what I remember reading was that KNEC like switched their um platform or not platform but their uh, format. Mm-hmm. Because of those sold out shows at Long Beach Arena they were like, "Oh, okay, we get it. Like metal's like a real thing in this area." So then they like I heard that's when they like switched to a more like, you know, the pure rock, the heavy metal kind of format.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm yeah. I used to listen to K&AC religiously growing up, but um, my boyfriend is a is a DJ for Knac.com or what right. he still does writing and photography for them. So he knows all about the history of of and different aspects of it. But yeah, I I was a huge fan of KNAC growing up. It was part of my part of my teen years, definitely.
0: Yeah, That's yeah, me too.
1: Thank <laughs> because we. We had a few other rock channels hit or miss, but um, nothing like KNEC that just supported that metal scene.
0: Yeah, yeah. What, so let's get into your highlights. So, what do you, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of curious what your highlights from the album are.
1: Sure. Um, what's, what's really interesting, <clears throat> even growing up, during the, the song Number of the Beast, <clears throat> There's a point in there where it sounds like there's a piano chord being played at two points. That's super, super, Hmm. super high. And when I was young, I heard this and I could never let it go. It Hmm. might be overtones from Steve Harris's bass because this is always top in the mix because Steve Harris is the boss of Iron Maiden. He is the vice president. Yeah of iron maiden and they needed a vice president a lot of bands i think if they if they had a leader like steve harris would have lasted longer or been stronger because you need one leader who's able to see the big picture and kind of not lay down the law like a dictator but kind of say hey guys in order for us to be successful we kind of have to get on the same page about a lot of these issues but but specifically there's a
0: so who's the president Hmm? If he's the vice president, Eddie. who's the president? Eddie. Oh, Eddie's the president. Oh, okay. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's any- awesome.
1: Eddie. Yeah. So um, so in the number of the beast sometime. Uh, if listeners want to check it out, it's exactly at 335 and 339. And it's after. Adrian's solo. And Steve Harris is playing a couple of riffs before it goes into the very last I believe chorus. So <clears throat> um, I think it goes into the last verse, I think that's it. And it, it's this zany, crazy, oh yeah it's on that and maybe it's because my mother was a piano player and an organist in the church and i had to always go to tons of rehearsals and sit in the back as a little girl and listen to tons of rehearsals of all kinds of crazy arrangements and parts and pieces of music where they would change it on the fly and i grew up in a mega church as a backup vocalist and and the, the head, uh, music master would, would sketch out, uh, quick, quick sheet music and with a marker. And then he'd make a hundred copies and then pass it out to everybody and say, everybody learn this in 48 hours. We're going live on TV with it. And so wow. it was just, it was a high pressure, interesting environment for a little girl to grow up in. But yeah, so,
0: wow.
1: so I, I, my, my ear got trained that way, but after a while it the fatigue sets in. You're wondering, what am I hearing? Do, am I hearing what I think yeah. I'm hearing?" And so I would tell people this, there's piano in number of the Beast, right after the last solo, and they'd say, "Oh no, you' you're no, no, it's not. You're hearing things. But it sounds like yeah, the, like a chord, like two extremely, extremely high notes. you know yeah. girl, you go crazy and you just start banging on the piano. Um, but it it may be steve harris's overtones on his strings
0: that's my guess i think i know what you're talking about right but But now now i need to listen to it again it's
1: fun to listen (laughs) to and just go this little piece right here just sounds nuts like they were in the studio and and they just said let's crank let's crank steve's part here it just almost sounds like somebody just went nutty and they said keep it in it sounds funky
0: you you play bass too, right, Jen?
1: Yes, I, I don't know how good I am. I used to play in a um, whole lot of Rosies, ACDC. Right, easier to play. Although I am inspired by Maiden, and I have tried learning different parts and pieces of Maiden songs, and then recently started taking some. Some lessons from Weena down in San Diego from Cowgirls from Hell. And she's phenomenal. She's a phenomenal oh, wow. base teacher. She's and, and I oh, cool. reached out wow. to her on. A whim. Yeah, I just reached out to her on a whim. I go, wow, I saw some of her YouTube videos. I'm like, wow, she kicks ass. I'm uh, I'm gonna see if she's currently teach teaching lessons or accepting any new students. And she taught me more in a few weeks than um than than I've learned then I've attempted to learn, you know, studying through online programs or, or whatnot. Hmm. Cause she can see me. She'll say, Hey, every week, send me a video of you playing and she'll analyze it before the lesson and go, okay, you're doing this wrong. Oh, you're doing wow. this wrong. You're wrong here. Bah, 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 bah. And because she can see my instant feedback and then she'll fix it. She'll tell me how to fix yeah. it. Cause I'm, if I didn't know, I'd be like, Oh, I'm playing a fine. You know, it's that tough. Yeah. Love. So, um, yeah. And I, I recently, um, started playing guitar again as well and um, my bucket list is to sing and play at the same time like some of my heroes like dave yeah. and james hatfield so i'm working on that with some new songs i'm writing with my guys in subsurface tension so that's fun it helps keep my mind off of the pandemic and the lockdown because whenever i'm practicing guitar or whenever i'm at rehearsal with them i completely forget about all the uncertainty in the world and all the all the illness and all the political divide right now, which is so yeah negative, and I, I mm-hmm. don't know what to do about it. And I think that's why people get so depressed because they they feel like they they are they don't have control, and they just want everyone wants peace and love, but we don't know how to get it. We, especially if we're all right. separated, isolated in our homes, rather than right being able to, right. where people can work together for that. So. Yes, I'm I'm studying. I bought I bought a keyboard for my youngest son this summer to help him through some of the lack of school boredom and being shut in the house. And then I thought, you know what, yeah. I'm gonna use it for songwriting and stuff like that.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So what so what's the best song in the album? <laughs>
1: my favorite is twenty two Acacia Avenue or really? I would say twenty 22- two yeah. And then, kind of a close second is Children of the Damned. I love Children of the Damned yeah. as a vocal because that song really lets your vocals shine. But when I sang yes, with them yes, and yes. when I sang with Rathchild, it was really a tough sell to get Children of the Damned on the set list because all my cohorts were metal lovers and they felt like Children of the Damned was a sleeper. Um, it's the kind Aww. of song you want to play third or halfway into the set when you need kind of a break. Oh, okay,
0: yeah, I, I kind of get that, yeah.
1: And and it's the second song on the album, so you're kind of hit hard with Invaders, getting your blood pumping, and you go, okay, I get a feel for what this band's about. Then they, boom, they hit you with Children of the Damned, which kind of gets you right, gets your chills, um, gets your goosebumps going, because it's very, the lyrics are very dark. It's based on a, a movie that I've never seen. And... <laughs> it's haunting and you know talk about peeling the skin from your eyes and this and that it's like i don't even know what he's talking about but it's haunting but there's a lot of power in it and it just that the momentum of that song driving forward i just love it i'd love to do a a lockdown cover of that someday um or any cover of it someday um and then the prisoner is one of the most badass drum intro songs of all time so Clive Burr has this deep sounding kick drum and these toms mm-hmm.
0: that are
1: bellowing with power. And you listen to that and you're like, damn.
0: <laughs> his I hear- snare drum, too. I love his Woo. snare drum sound, too. It's great.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure that's what Martin Birch helped really dial in for them later on that they didn't have on their first album, especially with. Yeah a good drum sound and you know, as being a drummer, if you don't have a good drum sound, you don't have that foundation for all the instruments on top. And, but in order to get that good drum sound, you need to back, you need to have good financial backing so that you can get at least one mic for every drum, maybe two. I've seen engineers put yeah. one mic on the inside and one mic on the outside, different types of mics. That way they have right. um, diff- different, different options when they're mixing to really get that round full sound because sometimes people i've heard people do um lockdown covers with just like one mic on the whole drum kit and right and so much lost for that and i think oh it's just a lockdown cover who cares you know but for maiden it really a lot gets lost there but you don't know that until you do it yeah so um yeah.
0: I, the funny thing is I actually I I kinda I dig how the first album sounds, but I get that like there's clearly a jump once you get to Killers, you know, and they start working with Martin Birch. Um yeah. but it but it's funny, like I there's like a total charm to me about how that first album sounds. I don't know. It's oh, crazy. But. It's
1: completely raw and I love Paul Diano. I love his vocals. I, I'm more of a Bruce girl. I sound like Bruce, but but Paul, oh, my God, on the Killers album, he's so raw and he's got the punk side. He's got the clarity. And what really helped me understand Paul Diano was reading his autobiography um, many years ago. And, mm. and I think I did a prize night with the Iron Maidens. I always like to give away prizes with them. I was trying to make it fun. I always try to make every show memorable in some way even if we had no maiden related prize i would give out some yeah. freaking pound cake or something uh, which was nutty but i oh, would, wow. I just tried to make every show fun but that book yeah you're
0: good at that you always like like shows were like an event i remember right? that's awesome yeah, maybe yeah, event, yeah
1: but that book yeah really gets into the psyche of paul diano and i highly recommend it to anyone who's a maiden fan who has not read it he wow you I mean, his eyes are so hauntingly blue and they talk about a story in that book, how they went to go see a psychic and the psychic took, she was like kind of reading the fortunes of the guys, took one look at Paul and said, Nope, not, not going to do it. Not going to do it. She said, you've got demons in you and I can see it in your eyes and I'm not going to read your fortune. Something like that. It made for a very interesting story in the book, but Paul lived a, a hard life. Everything he did, he did a thousand huh. percent, and and I yeah. can I can totally empathize with that. I understand that. I felt that way about certain aspects of my life as well. And he, you know, people people oh they love to say oh well this singer's better than that or this drummer's better than that or with maiden with any band but especially with maiden and i i never like to hear that with maiden because it took every member to get that band to where they finally became and still are through yeah. the path so whether it's dennis stratton on guitar to help kick them off yeah yeah whether it, yeah you know, we needed paul diano to do his great work with Iron Maiden and killers and to kind of fall off the rails and struggle with his alcoholism in order to get Bruce. And then Bruce um, worked with Clive Burr, I believe in the Samson band. So Clive probably knew Bruce from there and recommended him there. And then, you know, there, there are different, there are different reports about different things of why Clive left Maiden or why he was terminated and some, some say because he didn't get along day-to-day with Steve, who ran the band. That could be. That's mm. a big piece yeah. of it. Um, some of it could be he had health issues later in life with MS, um, battling with that. And it could be that he, even if he was not diagnosed early on, he may have had some symptoms of that which does affect your nervous system and being able to control your ligaments and muscles and playing and playability which can really be stressed going on tour and it could be triggered by many things so it took every guy in maiden to make maiden what it is today and that includes michael kinney on keyboards who's like the unsung hidden in the back it takes the pressure off the guys in the front trying to play all the guitar parts. And who knows, maybe that could be a factor in having Yannick join the band. Um, so if, if they did bring in the guitar synth as an element, in addition to Michael Kenny playing behind the curtain, sometimes yes and sometimes no. Um, I could speculate mm-hmm. all day, yeah. but I know my, my boyfriend Jordan knows some of the um, maiden tech guys and he he's pretty close with michael kenny too so i'm sure he he would dive in and say blah 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 like he's he's interviewed Nico McBrain a few times and at nam oh and, that's amazing um he even got nico to do a shout out to me on my birthday on the tape which was, which was so <laughs> so sweet you know
0: <laughs> oh my god that's amazing so i love nico he, he seems like
1: what a character i mean there,
0: there's actually a lot of them that would be fun to hang out with but he, yeah. he might be like the most fun <laughs>
1: Is <laughs> extremely animated, extremely animated, and yeah. the absolute sweetest was Adrian and Dave. They're both huh. exactly, exactly the way they are on stage. Very gentlemanly, professional, not not professional in a in a, in a stuffy way. Just yeah. like you you'd trust them with your life immediately. Just. Really solid guys and super humble. You'd never know they were yeah. global rock stars meeting them backstage. And their wives right. were so nice and their kids were just running around when we met them at um, at Irvine Meadows. And they were so gracious to us and the Iron Maidens bringing us back and um, and getting
0: us, so us back
1: at Long Beach Arena as well. And just having us walk right in the back and so gracious. And I remember – wow. Um, Adrian's wife. She was so excited because one of us had a, a CD of original music, and she was just so excited about it. And she she would grab it and say, "Oh, I'm going to give it to the guys to listen." And and she just believed in us so much. And I thought, "Oh, you people are so sweet."
0: <laughs> wow. What do you remember? What year that was?
1: That would have been probably two thousand and three, two thousand two, two thousand three, somewhere in that time frame.
0: Okay. Wow. Wow. What a, what a, an experience.
1: Yeah, that was.
0: So you, you kind of touched on something, um, that it made me <laughs> kind of think about was like the order of the songs on number. It's like, I, I could kind of conceive of a different order. <laughs> it's like, really? you know, um, children of the damned second. I the, the one you thing I, I've, yeah. The one thing I've heard, before too is like that for being one of the you know greatest you know classically greatest albums especially in metal of all time mm-hmm. the the first song is like not the best you know so oh, it just it makes is- me more. I don't know if there's a better first song though I really don't know if I could put right? a better first song though
1: I was thinking the same thing it's like invaders da 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 you know but it's it's a perfectly respectable song and it kicks ass and it's almost like gearing you up for what you're gonna hear later. And, yeah, I and
0: mean, it it's a good first. I mean, the tempo wise, it kind of gets right in and does its thing,
1: right? So maybe when they put it together, maybe they knew that the, these kick-ass tunes were going to be like the number of the beast and run to the hills and Hallowed be thy name is like the perfect arena rock song, right? But
0: yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, we were even talking about this yesterday with Jordan saying, "How do you pick?" the order you can worry about it or
0: oh i love that you, stuff you
1: can just wait <laughs> and say you know what let's just not think about it let's let's not distress over what we can't control let's record it all and let's sit back and listen and i was telling jordan yeah bring in 3 to 5 of your trusted people get a consensus cuz not everybody
0: oh totally yeah we do
1: i mean lord knows yeah. i my, my last single that I dropped, I sent out to a few of my uh, musician peers, people that I respected, whether they're guitar players, bass players, drummers, said, here, mostly they're guitar players. So, here, listen to this latest single. We recorded it. We're, we're still doing some post-production, so we could still make a few changes. But just give me your feedback. I want to be open-minded. I don't want to be one of those pig-headed people. <laughs> and it was fascinating. Right. Because some people all agreed on this same damn thing and they would give you specific feedback. I'm sure you've noticed this in your band. If you ask for feedback and then other people give you feedback that exactly contradicts each other <laughs> and they're right that you respect, like, wow, both of these guys are kick-ass guitar players, but they both said the exact opposite thing. Um, about right. The same, right. About the same exact part of the song. So it's just, it's fascinating. And then after a while, you have to say, you know what, just go with whatever, just go with your gut. It's art.
0: Yeah, but I kind of think there, there's an art in the order, you know. Like I feel like the pre—that's part of the presentation. Um, mm-hmm. And I know we're like maybe slowly phasing out of like the out al- the importance of the album, but I, I don't think it'll ever completely go away. Like the album mm-hmm. itself as a piece of art, but right. Um. So I, you know, we we even though. I don't, we still put stock in it as an artist and, uh, but so I'm just curious though, like what, okay, let's, let's talk about children of the dam. Like a, as far as what would you put in its place? If you, if that was, cause I, that, that's a questionable slot for it, for me, like the second, you know,
1: children of the dam probably could go third. And probably what I would have done is I would have taken the prisoner with the one of the most kick-ass drum intros mm. of the time. I would have started the album with that. So, oh,
0: okay. Okay. So
1: start it with the, but the thing is it starts hmm. with a vocal line, We want information,
0: information. Right, right, so, right.
1: So the average listener would listen and go, what the fuck is this? What, you know, ah. so I can yeah. see why they put that third. I can see why they started the number of the bees with Vincent Price, Price's voice first, but on the B side. So, If they did start with a prisoner, if I was Steve Harris reincarnated, I could say, hey, let's start side A with the prisoner, take off that movie line. We don't need that. We we may not be used to our Iron Maiden skin yet because we're just getting big, but we don't really need that movie line to kick ass. We got Vincent Price on side B. Let's just start the prisoner with that kick ass drum thing, then maybe go into invaders then children of the dam then 22 acacia avenue maybe then okay. flip it over and then i think the other side i think the other side works i mean you you take the risk yeah. of gangland not as commercially accessible putting that on side a and then you've got your sides are a little bit unbalanced because so i think having commercially commercial material catchy material or your stellar, your higher-level material, a few on each side, helps balance that. But what would you do? What yeah. would you order it?
0: Well, I, you know, I, I don't know all the way through, but I, w- I was thinking I'd, I'd probably put Number the Beast second.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But then, then I'd have to look at the whole. I'm not really thinking of the whole right, right now. So I'd have to think of where...
1: Also, but yeah,
0: I could see Arden that going. You know, I don't know if there's a better opener to, to be honest. I mean, I just feel like
1: opener with the with Clive Burr's drum intro to "Run to the Hills." Very standard. That's interesting.
0: That's interesting. So and maybe that, you know what that could work because, like, that has even though like that has the up tempo feel. You know, you know the gallop and
1: the oh, it's horrendous it's horrendously fast
0: actually i like that i actually really like that's so signature like you said
1: have you ever covered number of the uh, or have you ever covered uh run to the hills on drums
0: um like jamming around uh, no you know, playing no, no i i i think a, a band when i was a kid we did and uh it's really difficult i mean he's huh? just playing it's what is really it 30 difficult. second notes or the whole time yeah. you know
1: so we we to Metal Jam, I think the first year we did Metal Jam, which is a Metal Jam for Autism charity thing we do yeah. here. It's at the yeah. Lamp in Long Beach. And the first one was like, I don't know, 17, 16 years ago. And we had we had Run to the Hills on the thing. And I remember Drum Slut, a friend of ours, for, plays in many, 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 tribute bands.
0: I remember him, He yeah. said,
1: well, let's do Run to the Hills. It's, it's really easy. It's a walk in the park. I can play it with my hands behind my back. And I said, no, it's difficult. It's a, it's a windbreaker. It, it'll knock the wind out of it. And he's in great shape. And he said, nah, it's easy. Um, <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. I said, I, it's tough for me to sing. It's tough for singers to sing. It's tough for drummers to play because it, it sounds like a sing along. It sounds like a fun song, but when you play it, you're like, holy hell. So I played yeah. it. And yeah. then after metal jam, either metal jam one or two, he, he came up to me and he said, Jen, you're right. It was, it, it's love f- that tempo Woo,
0: that, that'll knock you out. that's no joke that thing's no, no joke. joke i mean you're literally playing i, I don't know if it's 16th or, or 30 yeah. seconds but the whole song yeah. and it's a and like you said it's a good tempo and especially live you know drummers are always gonna speed it up a little bit so you know once the uh adrenaline kicks in and all that so right. i don't know i mean How does it's not it's that? doable but it's it's i'm sorry
1: how did you deal with that as a drummer? So w- would you play with a click to stay on? Because I've known a few drummers that get real excited and they, they push the tempo to the point where the guitarists are struggling to play their parts cleanly.
0: Totally. And that's, that's always, that's always the problem really, you know, is just it like it's, it's think- a total <laughs> natural thing that happens. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry.
1: Mm. So i was drinking water i think you played with a click with uprooted right and that's difficult because then you've got different inputs yeah. into your ears and whether you're you're live guys but then the click is just kind of to keep you on track but it's not exact
0: right so yeah with uprooted exactly i played to a click um uh, the whole time pretty much i mean i think maybe in the very beginning i, I we didn't speak um but then when, once we started using samples and mm-hmm. things like that then uh, we played to a click so um yeah i mean it's it's tough to like i mean but it's i think it's a great skill for drummers especially because uh, oh, yeah. in the stu- the studio you want to be able to play to a, a click to record i mean not not everybody right. play i mean even maiden i think t- to this day they don't play to a click like you know that's part of their their vibe is to play loose and and not you know not you know, not, you know, kind of old school, like not play to a click and right. just keep and it feel, but, um
1: Feel the fluidity of of the tempo change. And I know Nico McBrain exactly, kind of yeah. gets criticized for that, but it's like, hey, I think it would be harder. Well, e- either way is difficult. I don't know how the hell you play with a click and trying to keep the samples and your live musicians all um, in limbo going on with your click, and then remembering all your drum parts and your fills and everything. But then the other ways. Difficult too, and maybe he did more improv when he used to play with Pat Travers' band. But he's more of a finesse player, and it—it's kind he of like is,
0: yeah. He
1: go—he go, he just goes off. You can see it in his face He's
0: a total and, improv guy, yeah. And all
1: the, the little tinkly tink with all the huge seventeen hundred symbols he's got going on.
0: Mm-hmm. Where,
1: where even though they play the big arenas, Steve Harris runs up to him, and and they can look at each other, and and. And fudge with the tempo a little bit and make it more human. So I, I think both ways are difficult, frankly. Yeah,
0: no, no doubt. Hardest no
1: instrument you can even play. Um, and one day I'd love to take some lessons from um, from good old Mike, who teaches my son and teaches your taught your nephew and turned your nephew into yeah. a prodigy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <sighs> no doubt. <laughs> yeah, he's Mike's great. But I just think in terms of like click or no click, I think it just kind of depends on the style. You know, I think there are, I don't know. I, I think there's a time we've, I've recorded, uh, I mean, not I, but like our band has recorded to a click for a long time. And it just, um, it for one thing, I mean, it, it just takes some guesswork out, but it also like, I guess that's really the whole thing. It just, it kind of makes things a little simpler and just, um, and then in terms of tempos, you don't have to worry about it. And you know, fortunately for us, our drummer is like really good playing with a click. You know, in the studio,
1: Jimmy's awesome.
0: So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, he yeah, we're, we're lucky.
1: That guy can play. But me.
0: um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's pretty good. Um, so okay, so what about best vocal performance or moment on this album? Ooh! Um, <laughs>
1: what I like about Bruce is his—he's a huge role model for me. From flipping back and forth from air raid siren melodic to grit, and that's probably right. one of the biggest things I've learned from him. And I use that a lot in my vocal style with subsurface tension. And yeah, I enjoy the grit. Not everybody does. I've had people tell me. You use too much grit. And then I've had people tell me, don't sing so melodic. You're true. Being true to yourself is singing with grit. So I just have to try to make everybody happy with that. But, <laughs> but it's not all about me. It's about Bruce. Let me get back to Bruce. So first of all, Run to the Hills, even though it's a radio friendly song, it's very difficult to sing. And it, it requires mm. a lot of breath control. And when I'm not regularly doing kickboxing or running, I struggle to sing that song. So that one's huge. Hmm. Hallowed be thy name. Same thing. So that hmm. comes near the end of the set, a lot of running around, long notes, breath controls required. And that's, that's a huge, just a huge inspiration for me as a singer to be able to sing that and Practice to that when I was a teenager and in my twenties, and um, and then finally one day I had the crazy idea to to put together a maiden tribute band and and actually sing <laughs> it because frankly I sounded so more cool. like Bruce than anybody else. But so, "Hallowed Be Thy Name," yes. Yeah. Um, run to the hills for yes for the for the breath control. The number of the beast. Yeah for the grit and being able to hop in and out of the grit. He uses more grit in that tune than, um, than I think the others, um, throughout because the verses are more yelly than sing songy. (laughs) Right.
0: Um, Right.
1: If that's an adjective, yelly. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. I I like yelly. I use that. Yeah
1: and then children of the damned for his he could really shine with his classical training where you you hear right. that damn this guy's a has a legit voice here and it almost children of the damned kind of lures you in thinking oh well this band isn't that hard this band is very melodic and
0: but it's dark it's so dark
1: right yeah and, uh, and luckily, they wrote their own lyrics on that one, so they didn't have to pay. Although, what's interesting, going back to the Hallow Be Thy Name um, uh, lawsuit, is mm. it, when I looked into that briefly, I think Loudwire covered it in an article. And it, there was a mention of two songs, two Iron Maiden songs that had borrowed lyrics but the only one I could find evidence of was Hallow Would Be Thy Name. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's another one on this particular album where there was a line or two borrowed from something else. So that's a question for for listeners or the trivia people out there to um, to look into that, because I would definitely hmm. want to read up on, on that more if someone knows and wants to post that in the comments.
0: Well, they've definitely um, borrowed from a lot of dead authors, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yes. Like there, so many of their songs are about books or movies. or so. It's so funny. And, the, of course, and Rhyme of the Ancient Mirror, the poem, and stuff like that. Right. It's so funny. Yeah, I Which start- I love. It's so great. It's, it's great.
1: Yeah. In college, it really helped me um, pass that. That was a major part of one of my literature tests at Long Beach State no way was rhyme of the ancient mariner and and my teacher had no idea it was a huge iron maiden song oh
0: i did the same thing i um i actually like there was like a book of poems it was like a uh there was like a sale or something like that at the library Mm -hmm. in high school and there was like a poem, poem book and it had it was like british poets and i was so nerdy about maiden that I was like, oh, I wonder if, you know, and so I flipped through this whole thing and I found the the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I love that. And it was like, I don't even know, it's like 50, I don't know, it's like 50 pages or it's like the longest poem I think ever written or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, appropriately, they they wrote one of the longest songs <laughs> to go with it. Right, so, but yeah.
1: Yeah, my, uh, my Cal State Long Beach professor woman was very prim and proper and she wore she's a tiny tiny woman who wore a pillbox hat with a little veil in front the little white kid gloves with the tiny little purse you hold in front of you and walked she was probably in her 70s but she had on these like six inch high heels with a teeny tiny heel like she could just fall over at any moment and it, it was it was she was a character and so i i had to shock the shit out of her with my with my iron maiden and you know she was American, but she spoke like she was British, you know, the literature. Um, oh, So yeah. I had to kind of... Like, like my- Madonna? <laughs> right. Right. So <laughs> that, that was fun. But 22 Acacia Avenue is one of my favorite songs. I'm yeah. not sure why. Maybe it's because Charlotte the Harlot was a, a woman. She's trying to be independent by having a job, but it's a very dangerous job. And... And I, right. I thought it, it's a very sensual song out the beginning. It's guys going to see her. But then at the end, one of the guys tries to save her and talk her out of it and pull her out of it. So there's just a lot going on there. And there, the, the vocals are just hard driving, beginning to end. I, I loved singing this one for some reason. I just loved it. And, and yeah. I, I'm not sure I can quantify why. I just I love the
0: screams, like when he does the screams, you know. Yeah. When you're la la, you know, all that (laughs) oh so great.
1: He's mad at her. He's trying to get through to this woman, right? Get a new get a new um, profession, lady, become a librarian or something. It doesn't pay well. It's not as glamorous, but hey, you've got your (laughs) your dignity. (laughs) But um, not that I'm saying prostitution is bad. I think some people think it should be legalized and a woman has the right to do whatever she wants. Absolutely. But it was just the cool, maybe the dichotomy of, of having, having both sides in the song.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's fascinating the subject matter because these guys are British. They wrote mm-hmm. a Songs not only about novels and fiction, but also about real wars, like the Trooper with the Crimean right. War. And so they they were talking about some of these topics that were heavy topics, even though at the time, you know, they do like a funny video where they Steve Harris is wearing a,
0: oh, right. a,
1: a little G string made out of a rabbit fur on a bicycle. And he's pretending to shoot a bow and arrow against a green
0: is that him? That's him? <laughs> Yeah. I didn't and, even know that.
1: And and then they've got different things popping in and out, but it's but it's a heavy topic. And it's like, hey. Right. And, it, and it's an ongoing and relevant topic today with a lot of the social justice going on. And, um, yeah. So Absolutely. So it keeps the music and the message relevant through time. And it's not like Iron Maiden's in there trying to solve the world's problems, but they're bringing up these issues, which uh, just makes them more. And I always thought they were much more interesting than other bands who would just sing about girls or alcohol or how drunk they could get or doing interviews about how fucked up they get with their with their hookers or, or whatever you call them, roadies, yeah girls, what do they call them? Groupies. Yeah, so some shock bands would just talk about crazy orgies like trying to get publicity. And yeah, they got publicity, but what kind of on, ongoing long-term publicity and respect do you get from your, from your viewership, from your audience as compared to guys like Iron Maiden, who I always thought were very classy. And even, um, I, uh, one of the, the gals, I won't say who, um, uh, during this tour slept with one of the guys in Iron Maiden, I won't say who, and she mm. said the next, she, she, he didn't kick her out. After coitus, after the act at the hotel, he kept her in bed all night. The next morning, got her all wrapped up, got her a bite to eat, and was a perfect gentleman. Kissed her on the hand hmm. and sent her off. So these are classic, like a perfect
0: British gentleman.
1: Exactly. These guys, eat. yes, they're rock stars. Yes, they got their their fair share of pretty ladies hmm. on the road, but um, they were gentlemen. So I got to respect that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, you know, it's interesting too. You know, back to run of the hills what you were saying about the fact that the video was so goofy cuz I kind of kind of forgot about that and like a lot of their videos did have humor in it and it was like such an interesting balance because you're right, they're taking on like pretty serious heavy topics, but then mm-hmm. they would be re- like some of the a lot of their videos were pretty silly and and then you know so they always like had that really nice balance of um again that's sort of like part of the culture that i just fell in love with it was just like such a fun i don't know it was just like there was something for everyone and and yeah yeah. and at the same time you could get into like a topic that was really interesting and historical or something like that if, if that was your thing. And so, I don't know, it was just such a, like a fun ride. You know, there was just it was so much depth to it, I think.
1: Absolutely. And let's not forget about the satanic panic that hit in the eighties with the number of the beast, not
0: only with this album, the song. Yeah.
1: and they just lumped this in with Ozzy and wasp and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but it, it provided a lot of good publicity as well. So that's another thing. So they, they were yeah. with the times, almost knowing, Hey, this is going to be a hot topic let's call it the number of the beast let's put the devil on it let's have eddie with the puppet strings handling the devil and then the devil is handling on the puppet strings this little man that's way down below by the flames and right um, and people just ate it up especially the right-wing christians at the time yeah classic
0: little did they know that eddie was pulling the strings on them too indirectly right.
1: eddie's in charge that's why i said eddie's the president
0: Eddie's in charge Hey, you're right. <laughs> you're right. But yeah, but okay, so talk about that really quick. Like, um, I mean, was that not a non issue out out here? You know, since we were in like, Southern California? or
1: Oh, the or, or Santana- was that a thing?
0: Yeah, just the panic around, you know, the the music and censorship and all that kind of stuff. It
1: was big. I remember, and it wasn't just metal bands. They were getting uh, Pet Benatar for Hell is for Children. And I think it was Mm -hmm. one of the, the wives of one of the politicians that became her pet project. And later on, I know that they slapped that label on it, Satanic Panic. And sometimes Mm. the media will do that or the people above the media that pull the puppet strings like to slap Mm. names on things so that the, the general population understands it and they, it helps them control, control the narrative. It's brilliant marketing. And they use satanic panic at the time for the McMartin preschool, um, fiasco, which was a huge media frenzy um, about the McMartin preschool. And I won't get into depth depth with that, but there was that incident and there were also one or two murders of children and they tried to blame it on heavy metal people. And they tried to say Hmm. that um, if you play Led Zeppelin's album backwards, you can hear satanic stuff and its subliminal messaging and its brainwashing and we have to we have to censor these things. And so it was it was a, a big time for anti-censorship groups to speak up and say, "Oh no, you're not going to censor this." And and later they ended up censoring things I think in the 90s with the with the stickers going Oh yeah, the explicit. Explicit. But back then yeah. I think they were trying to ban them. And so Aussie Mm. Um, and D. Snyder actually went into a, a courtroom, and he was he was phenomenal. You got to check this out on YouTube if you guys have.
0: Yeah, heard
1: or seen I think it. I've
0: seen like a bit of it.
1: It's classic. He comes in wearing pants that are way too tight, and he's very well endowed, so you really notice that. <laughs> the poor, poor- <laughs> women in the courtroom were watching D. Snyder walk in in a very tight shirt, very tight pants. And he sits down with his huge curly blonde hair, pulls out of his pocket, a piece of paper folded up into a tiny thing. Kind of like the way we did our,
0: yeah. our algebra
1: homework back in the day. <laughs> pulls yeah, it out. I
0: remember, I remember that.
1: And he, he totally threw them off. Cause they're probably all thinking, who's this guy? Who's this guy from right. New York or New Jersey? He talks just like all my uncles from Jersey, but I think he's from New York. And, He read the most amazing piece about censorship and about what these artists, these metal musicians are not and what they are. And you got to, you got to see it on YouTube. It was classic. He put them all in their place and they know how to respond. They just thought, Oh, here, who's this idiot coming in here? And uh, it was wonderful. Kind of reminded me of Frank Zappa back in the day. Um, (laughs) I was just
0: thinking about that.
1: (laughs) Right? Just a voice of reason cutting through all the the bullshit because the media, you know, the media can get just whacked out depending on who's paying the bills with them. And that's the scary part. all have to just keep our thinking caps on and keep an open mind and follow the money and not just believe everything we see or hear anywhere, regardless of whether or not it's on mainstream media or YouTube. Um, cause there's a lot of bullshit all over the place and it's being able to yeah. think ourselves and we don't need to know the answers. We don't need to know it all. Um, I think what's more important is that we, we don't build walls between our fellow human beings which is what we see now with the pandemic. So I really like what you're doing with your podcasts and just opening up, talking about metal, but just opening it up, talking about everything and and just communicating and getting things out in the open. that's how we're going to get past this divide in our country is just by talking and respecting each other's values and opinions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's awesome. Um, Let's see here. Okay. So this is always like a fun question. If you were in Iron Maiden, as you dreamed to be, (laughs) and you know, like this album just came out and you're about to go tour, like what would be like the two, one to two songs that you you're like feeling like you're going to be playing in the set the the rest of your career?
1: Oh yeah. This putting together the set list. And I did that a lot with the Iron Maidens. I,
0: I yeah. enjoyed
1: putting together, we had two set lists. We had a live after death so set list. you got to do this. <laughs> yes. And then we had one that was just um, more fun, no, not more fun than live after death, because life after death was my end all be all. That was my favorite. But we did another set list balancing. So we So we would put both of these in both of those. So if I was in Maiden, and believe me, when Bruce left before they got Blaze Bailey, I was in college. And I, oh my God, I thought, oh, this is my, this is my chance. I could sing for
0: people. Oh my God! And I thought,
1: Jenny, who the hell are you kidding? You, you, you're a theater singer. You're a classical singer. You've never fronted a band except in your garage with a couple of girls from the neighborhood. No, you know. So um, oh,
0: I wish, I wished you had right. gotten an audition.
1: Oh, I would have died just walking in in front of those guys. I probably would have died in my boots. I would have died with my boots on.
0: So, yeah. Well, I think it would have been a hundred times <laughs> better than uh blaze Bailey. No, no disrespect to blaze Bailey. No
1: disrespect. He did have a, a um, a really, a cup, a couple of really catchy songs. Um, for
0: sure. I loved that album when it came out, but you know, I was really young and I don't think I knew any better.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it was, it probably comes down to temperament. Um, Steve Grimmett uh, I think auditioned for them as well not that Steve Grimmett had the temperament for them so Steve Grimmett if you go to my uh, Facebook page Jen Taylor Warren and you look at my um, profile picture I'm standing there with Steve Grimmett so he is a British singer he is he fronts a band called Grim Reaper and they had some big hits back in the day um, before before you you're younger than me. So they had a, they have a song called see you in hell that my, both of my last, last bands have covered um, quite a bit. So once um, somebody sent a link to one of my covers and, and tagged him in it and he responded and I about died and my little sister died because oh, wow. we both watching that song on MTV back in the day, my little sister's like, Oh my God. So he said, when I come to the States and do a tour, I want to Jam with you. And I thought, perfect. I thought he meant we'll bring him up on stage when if we have play a gig, we'll schedule a gig. But no, he scheduled a thing and played the whiskey and he said, Come on out, you're gonna sing see you in hell with me for the the last song, the encore. And I thought, Are you kidding me? That was so that oh was God. just a great, great, great moment. But later on, I didn't know this at the time when I sang with him at the whiskey, but he said, Yeah, I auditioned for Maiden and um and he, I don't think he had a debrief follow-up meeting with them to find out what the deal was and why they went with Blaze Bailey, but um, but I agreed with Steve in that his voice is is very similar to Bruce, um, much more. Mm, okay. Blaze has a different quality, and he's a great singer and is right, but he he has a different quality. But sometimes it comes, it doesn't come down to that. Sometimes it comes down to to personalities. Um, Steve Harris runs Maiden. And it was probably right. Steve's call, yeah. and it may it may just be who who enmeshed better at that particular time with those particular people. One of my best vocal instructors always told me, you know, give me give me somebody with a with a can do attitude, even if the the genre doesn't fit. Or I forget how she said it, and I I just always remembered that, and I thought, you know, I've seen other. Other people and I've I've always wondered like um, like Mickey D stopped touring with King Diamond and Mickey D hmm. helped give King Diamond that spe- specific sound with all the I love all the tinkly tink and all the offbeat and the syncopated rhythms and he ended up playing with Motorhead which
0: right I remember that I other with people
1: them. Um, like someone we both know and love said I don't understand why he did that um the music's very different the music isn't at that same difficulty level and i thought Mm -hmm. well you know from what i hear i've never met lemmy before i passed but from what i hear he was an amazing musician and an amazing person and it may just come down to saying hey i want to live in la and i want to jam with lemmy because every day jamming with lemmy is pure joy and And it may be that rather than saying, Hey, I'm playing the most difficult material right now. Um, you know, so there are many factors involved and I'm going off on it. My boyfriend always says, come back from Utah. You're, you're going off (laughs) field too many stories, too many (laughs) anecdotes. Come on back. So, <laughs> so set list. You asked me about the set list. So
0: so, so one to two songs from Number of the Beast that you're like, they're going to be in the set every night.
1: Yeah. For, so forever. Hallowed be thy name and Under okay. the Hills. Because that's what the crowd here. Okay. hear. Do I want to hear okay, every yeah, set? Yeah. No, I don't. Because Run to the Hills
0: well, no, is can no, killer. Is, all right, let's try another another version. So this is what <laughs> you want. I, I, I totally get that because that's part.
1: That's very like difficult. We,
0: yeah, it's yeah. it's hard. But so, um cuz I get yeah. that that's part of what we want is what the crowd like you are you know you're right. as a musician you're also thinking about think how them, the crowd's yeah, going to respond.
1: That's what they want. But but it's difficult. And so I think with the Maidens we left Halloween be thy name off one show and when I sang with them and yeah. we had to replace it with a lot of big big things or they're going to feel like they didn't get their money's worth. So, you know, we ended with Iron yeah. Maiden. We running free. We do run to the hills, but if I just want yeah, to do what's those are good for me, I'd probably do children of the damned and 22 Acacia Avenue, just cause those I yes, love. And I, there we go. I get into a psychological I love it. sense when I sing them and I kind of go nuts. I kind of go crazy. So, um, those, yeah. those are great.
0: Okay. I love that. Those are, those are, those are, uh, those are, uh, I like both of those answers because, I get, I get the first answer a hundred percent, but I totally love the second. And that's, a, that's what you want. And I love those two also. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in, um, I have a funny, a funny little anecdote about, um, uh, Children of the Damned when, gosh, this was, I guess, like early high school, probably freshman year. And I didn't really do anything like my brother played guitar and I uh, had a Um, close buddy in fact he was the one on the uh somewhere in time podcast uh his name is paul and uh so we were at paul's house and you know paul played guitar i don't know if i mentioned that my brother and paul are playing guitar and they're getting you know pretty good you know and like so and i'm just basically like i'm the groupie i basically i'm just like hanging around with the guitar players you know Mm -hmm. and at some point I like I would, uh, Paul had drumsticks. So I started, I would just literally play like on the carpet, you know? And then I just like wanted to do something. So one day he had, he bought like a four track, like a tape, a four track recorder, you know? And, uh, we recorded children of the dam. now I have no idea where this recording is, but I just remember feeling that was like the most accomplished thing that any of us had ever done. Cause mm. we, it was a cover, but we recorded a song, you know, oh. it was like, wow. But it, I'm sure it's terrible, but like, I, would, I would love to hear that someday Absolutely. <laughs> if it
1: Even if it is terrible, it, everything's a learning moment. And I know um, one, of the, one of the big things about Maiden is it's such a great band for younger musicians or any musician learning anyone, any level to cut their teeth on and to learn whether or not you're a guitar player, bass player, drummer, or vocalist. Maiden has so much to teach by learning and covering those songs, any of their
0: songs. yeah.
1: And yeah, absolutely. They recently recorded a Iron Maiden an Iron Maiden quarantine cover of Aces High, that will be out um, sometime in the near future, with some oh, nice women who are playing the other instruments. So.
0: Oh, that's great
1: that'll be fun
0: can't wait to see that um let's see okay what can up-and-coming bands learn from iron maiden
1: so the guitarists can learn from dave murray's tone hammer on pull-offs they can learn he, he, his tone is so round and Yes, melodic and his soloing style. I really like cause he also, it looks so easy for him with the hammer on pull offs that he does. And then what I like about Adrian is that his guitar playing perfectly balances Dave's. He has a different tone, slightly more distorted. And he, I think I don't know if I want to say a more casual player, but I want to say whereas Dave Murray sounds a little more bluesy, Adrian Smith sounds Mm. a little more classic, classic, classic rock. Maybe I'm thinking of Rainbow Deep Deep Purple. But Martin does a great job at balancing both of their volumes. So even though the tone is slightly different, they sound perfect together, but a guitarist can learn so much from them, for instance, on one of the Aces High covers that I'm doing, one of the ladies had never heard Maiden before, and hmm. she's a USC graduate in guitar studies and wow. got the song Aces High, studied it, and she's got singles out doing other styles of music, pop, rock, folk, and she learned it. And it was really interesting listening to her take on it, not come hmm. from a metal guitarist like the other woman. And her, right. her ear listening and transcribing it, it still sounds great. And it's interesting because we're on lockdown, so they weren't mixed together. They were mixed separately. So the tone's a little different and the um,
0: one right, out right. a little
1: more and, and one girl's palm muting a little more. But it was fascinating to kind of look through her eyes at how she saw what Dave played and played it. So I think... Any musician, vocalist, anyone can learn from all those guys, whether it's, um, Nickel McBrain, um, Clive Burr, they're both phenomenal. They're both different. Yeah. I don't think one is better than the other. And I don't like reading about when people say, Oh, this one's better. And here's why I know this one's better than here's why. Well, you're a moron. If you think that, you know, um, and the same thing about the, the vocals, the vocals are different. Um, and, and they're they're different animals basically all part of this puzzle yeah. so vocalists metal vocalists definitely need to study Bruce Dickinson in my opinion um, to, to just to learn how to the, how to do the vibrato so if they need it they know how to do it learn how to right. do the grit so that they can use it here and there sparingly or maybe sing the whole time with grit um, like the like the metal church guy or the fastway guy who are just grit the whole time. Um Steve Harris right. doesn't play like anyone. And so learning that particular way to play bass brings so much more to the table as a bassist than just hitting the the root note and then following that kick drum or following that drummer is actually coming in and since Steve wrote most of the songs and and playing the bass like a guitar, but then like an upright bass at the same time and doing doing all those extra notes. He didn't have to play, but it gives it so much richness.
0: So right. We
1: could all learn so much. Iron Maiden could start their own university of music, their own music school. Um, yeah. I think the Iron Maidens could start their own summer camp for girls. Come on out and learn to play Maiden.
0: Yeah, there you go. I would
1: I would have signed up when I was first learning guitar. Absolutely.
0: That's awesome. Uh I think if I could add anything I would just it's kind of um towards what you said earlier about um Steve Harris being the vice president. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I think like that guy just had the whole vision in his head, you know, from day one and you're also correct because you made the point that it was all the members, even past and present, that forged their sound, which is totally true. I don't I don't know if they – honestly, I don't know if they ever become who they are without Paul Deano and, like, his punk rock roots, you know, because that really pushed those first, like, right. two and I would argue even third record because they still had a little bit of that, you know, that was – who they were at that you know at that point after the first two albums they, they had a little bit of that edge right and, they
1: needed so all to think, bridge that gap to get to bruce yeah. very necessary and the killers album is phenomenal i spent one summer just listening ah, to that album it. so great yeah
0: but but i just think like um but steve in terms of like so really i guess i'm kind of um going back and forth because you know I, it is all the guys but i think you were right when saying that, you know, Steve being like that one guy who's like, it's almost like, like a point guard in basketball where you have the coach, but you need that. Mm-hmm. You need the coach on the floor, you know, the coach on the basketball court. And for Steve was like, he was the the manager in the band and you kind of need that guy who has the vision. Mm-hmm. Cause like, honestly, like he's the manager of the band. I mean, I know they have Rob Smollett or whatever his name is. And he had, and he's great. And I'm sure he added a lot uh, from his experience and his expertise, but, but really like Steve had the whole vision and, it, and it's so different because it was not the the typical kind of radio pop uh, path, you know, yeah. they went like a total different direction and it completely worked. And they're probably bigger than, you know, 95% of bands that went the like pop, you know, radio route, you know, and, They're still going. It's just, it's kind of an unbelievable story to me.
1: Right. And it was not radio friendly. And they, that's the unique thing about Iron Maiden. Being able to create what they did, tour the world and have so much synergy together and with their music. Yeah. To. Yeah. To bridge that gap that gap of not having a lot of airplay and that would be death to a lot of bands, but also possibly they didn't have a lot of airplay in the U S but just like metal today, a lot of metal bands, just like Iron Maiden, um, they were very big in South and Central America, very big in Japan, very big um, Iron Maiden behind the Iron Curtain. I don't know if you have ever seen that documentary. I highly recommend it where they go into the Soviet Union prior to it dismantling, and right. It, it, right. it's fascinating. They interview people who are hanging out outside the arenas, the concert halls. Right. They want they want nothing else but to get in and see Iron Maiden because they're rabid fans. But one ticket costs like what they would make in, in a month their month or two months salary because. Right. Communism and um, the disparity between the the whole economic system before it crashed. So it's fascinating. And you do get those rabid fans. And I get friends now who are in metal bands that are big, but they're big in other countries. They're not that big in the U.S. because our market is um, saturated with different genres here, especially with listening to different genres Um, that not so much in those other countries. So it's fascinating how maybe they were, um, a household name in some of these other countries, but just not here. Um, yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, it said they, um, they did, uh, Uh, 18 they did 18 countries 188 shows in 18 countries over 10 months on on the beast on the road can you imagine
1: your vocals or your drum you know your wrists playing guitar bass or drums or your vocal cords.
0: for sure for sure well thank you so much jen um is, is there anything else you want to impart on on the world about the number of the beast
1: well I liked Vincent Price on it, even though, even though he didn't get his name on the, on the album. um, I think his, his fee was too high. So he just recorded it on the down low and they just gave him some cash under the table. (laughs) If, if you're younger and you're not aware of who Vincent Price is, he is, was, he, he can't be alive anymore. I'm not a huge horror buff, so I don't know. But um, so the Horror buffs can correct me in the, in the comments, but he was a huge (laughs) black and white horror actor back in the day. And I used to have him on like my spooky Halloween albums that I would get out every year at Halloween. And so, and he was a British actor. And I think they, they went to him to ask if he would speak this intro to the number. And I think he said, He said, no, like his fee was 25,000 pounds or something like that. Um, British pounds. And somehow he did it, but he's not listed on the album as far as I could tell. Um, huh. But it's, it's classic. It's that's,
0: yeah, oh, yeah. That's
1: the intro to Number of the Beast. And it's so um, unmistakably Vincent Price, who has to be one of the scariest voices in old black and white film. Um, and, and it just makes the album even that much more special
0: yeah you know since you brought up i i, I gotta uh put out in the universe how amazing that scream is in, in the intro there and number of the, mm-hmm. you know, the ba. Yeah. yeah that thing is just have you seen the um i think it's it was the vh1 like classic albums yeah mm-hmm. So there's a um, there was a program on VH1 called Classic Albums. And it's basically like, I don't know, about a 45-minute show. And they mm-hmm. kind of interview like the band and the producer. And they even go back into the studios where they made these classic albums. And um, this album was one of the ones they did on that show.
1: Oh, no. And so, I don't think I've seen that.
0: Oh, you got to see it. So it's I, I, I would go on YouTube because I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure I've seen it on there. And uh, they so there's a part in that where Martin Birch is in the studio and he's playing just the dry, like raw, like, you know, he's, he's soloing out, um, you know, performances from the album and he solos out that scream with like totally dry Mm -hmm. and no effect on it and everything. And it's just amazing just to listen to that. I mean, it's amazing.
1: I don't know. That scream
0: to me is, is the thing of legend. It's, it's It's amazing period.
1: But when they take off the reverb delay and any compression and you're like, there's Bruce, there's Bruce. in all his glory you're like holy hell he's a god and i have heard bruce absolutely that
0: solidified him oh my god
1: (laughs) like um hearing just his vocal tracks bare i've heard some of those and it's like holy damn i can't believe i used to try to tribute to this guy he's a god you know (laughs) (laughs) it's unbelievable because that was before that was on tape that was before we have pro tools where you can drag and drop and fix this little piece. You're pitchy here. Okay. Let's fix it. Um, right. Absolutely. They've got to do the whole thing at once and maybe string a couple pieces of tape together. And it's a huge hassle. So yeah, those guys are gods as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. And I, I can't remember if it was that part or the part before it, I don't, if it was a scream or the, uh, but like, it was, or the intro part that he sings right before, but, but like Martin had him, had Bruce doing it like over and over again, like to the point where like, I think Bruce was like throwing shit around the room. Cause he was getting pissed off because <laughs> he couldn't understand, like he couldn't hear the difference in the takes, you know? Yeah. And Martin's like, no, no, it's just, it's, 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 you're not there. Like, it's not, this is not like he knew, like he had that ear, he knew what he wanted and he just kept pushing. Mm-hmm. For it and then the funny thing about it was bruce was like even after martin got it he still didn't he still didn't understand what he, what was in the take that he wanted that wasn't in the other ones
1: hopefully <laughs> was, he recorded that one last so his voice wasn't thrashed for the next day
0: right uh, but, yeah, but he was that was young bruce he probably had and they you know all that. and they
1: may or may not have had all the equipment back then because they had more money later um for like a talkback mic or a listen back um, system so that you could hear it, and he could, and that way the engineer could say, "Okay, did you hear the way you did this here? Now just amplify that, or I need you to emote more on this particular part here." And that's difficult when you don't have that equipment back then, without all the the niceties. Frankly, Joe, that you and I have when we record vocals now, where we can do it cheaply and then with with gear we it it becomes a lot lazier frankly
0: (laughs) well but even now i feel like i feel like what what i'm guessing happened because it does happen to me a lot is you just get fatigue like your ears you get fatigued and you start you do start not hearing different subtle differences because your ears are just fatigued right and so like you just need to go like take a break for a half hour get out of the room or whatever because you do it's it starts becoming like this vortex of weirdness you know mm-hmm. after when you're in there too long and you got the headphones on or whatever you yeah. know and it's just
1: especially singing you just get
0: that fatigue metal with yeah.
1: fatigue i don't know how randy blythe does it from lamb of god he said <laughs> that recording albums for him is his least favorite part of anything regarding lamb of god because it's just 8, 10, 12 oh. hours of constant um he he is one of the few yeah. who can go back and forth between vocal fry and Um, and false chords screaming and then he Mm -hmm. jumps between them effortlessly almost to the point where it's hard to pinpoint exactly when and where he does um because he's a a master at it and and for him it's that expulsion of air i try singing that way and i want to pass out after 15 seconds um no wonder he's so thin he's probably a marathoner you know <laughs> these poor metal singers i mean jesus i i i've got
0: I've it been, is brutal I've Got
1: to run again or I'll, I'll have to give up and become a folk singer for heaven's sakes
0: yeah yeah <laughs> no, there, there's no doubt it's it's like uh um for people who aren't metal singers like if there's one way to kind of describe it it's like you like immediately almost immediately start sweating like even mm-hmm. just recording like not on stage but just like in a studio mm-hmm. because there's just that much energy is being put out right <laughs> so and then then you're doing that for like eight hours exactly. or whatever energy it's pretty rough
1: expended that's why so many of my voice teachers in the past and why you'll see large women diva singers because in order to, to create all that energy, you have to have energy in, which is food and calories yeah. in.
0: Yeah. And that's
1: why so many people end up getting large um, and, and having a weight problem later. So it's, it's a hmm. struggle. And I know before, during, and after when I'm doing a studio session at a real studio, so I've got to make my hours count. I eat like a freaking pig. Yeah. To keep up yeah. energy
0: yeah yeah that's yeah that's interesting i should probably i don't know i kind of do the opposite
1: <laughs> i've heard people say that i've heard people say i don't eat because i get nervous in the studio and i thought man if i didn't eat i'd faint on the floor
0: yeah i mean i probably should um i bring snacks you know and i kind of just because i just don't want to i like I'll, I'll get i don't want to get like the food comma thing going so i, I mm. just kind of nibble <laughs> Like the whole time. By the
1: time the engineers are ready, I'm hungry again. So it's like an all-day thing.
0: (laughs) That's hilarious. Oh, this is good. (laughs) That's great. Well, do you want to tell everyone where they can um, find your music or find you or on the the internet?
1: Absolutely. So it's it's Jen Taylor Warren on Facebook. I'm old school, so I'm on Facebook primarily. I also have... um, Instagram, Jen Taylor Warren. And then for Sub Surface Tension, my band, we are on Instagram and Facebook as Subsurface Tension. And our website is SubsurfaceTension.com. And our YouTube channel is Subsurface Tension. And we just dropped our first single under the name Subsurface Tension because we used to be Surface Tension. I had to change it. That single is called Devil Pin Up Girl and it is also available on Metal Assault Records. The compilation tape, it's called the Mixtape Volume 3, and we're really excited and stoked to be on that compilation album with all local SoCal artists on there, and there's some great stuff on there. Uh, Marishi Tim's on there, that's female fronted, female singer-guitar player, um, I think her name's also Jen, and she used to front cockpit back in the day when I was just getting the Iron Maiden started. And she's phenomenal. Hmm. She's amazing. Um, and there's also, there's great other great stuff on, great tracks on there as well. I just, she's the only person that I, I had already known um, who's on there. And Andrew Banzel from Metal Assault, he's just super supportive of local metal. I can't thank him enough for everything he does he has a, a
0: That's awesome.
1: job just constantly pushing metal and new original metal, all genres. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. So yeah, subsurface tension and I would love it. If anyone listening, just go to YouTube, listen to devil Pinup girl and just leave some comments. I would love to hear your feedback. It just posted recently. So we, we have very few comments and, And I'm very interested because I think people were a little bit surprised, pleasantly surprised, thank God, um, at it because it's just it's it is what it is. So I'm I'm just interested in feedback because I've been locked up with the lockdown for so long and we're writing new songs. And it's just so nice to hear from people, metal people um, about what they like, even if it's critique and criticism. My door is always open. Cause that's the only way to improve. And I'm always asking people for critique, Joe, you know, after a show, I'll say, Joe, what can we, what's one thing we could do better? What's three things we could do better. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Like, I
1: don't know. Yeah. You have fine. asked me that. That's Everything funny. So
0: is it on Spotify?
1: Not yet. It doesn't drop on Spotify.
0: Okay, Cause I think so, I looked on Spotify,
1: September 15th on all platforms, but right now it's okay. on exclusive for one month with Metal Assault. So right now it's just downloadable on Metal Assault through metalassault.bandcamp.com. Or you can go to YouTube our YouTube channel at Subsurface Tension and you could just watch it there. We have two versions. We have a lyric video and we have an in-studio, kind of a lockdown video we did shooting at six feet apart from each other um, in our little lockout studio. It's kind of a cheapy, fun DIY music video we did.
0: That's rad. Well, thank you so much, Jen. This was so fun.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.